Well, good morning and thanks for joining me on a Monday morning. Much of the province seeing sunshine and mild temperatures. Still minus 7, minus 9 in most of the province, central and south part of the province anyway. But later today, well into the plus temperatures. And, of course, that's sticking around for most of the week. Also coming up at 1 o'clock today, a news conference has been called. The president of the Saskatchewan Teachers Federation, Samantha Beacott, will be giving the latest announcement regarding job action. So anytime you hear that, it clearly is indicating things are still at a standstill in terms of negotiations and contract bargaining for the teachers and the province. So today we find out what's next. It might mean another day or more than one day off school for children in the province. There's a variety of different, I would say, pieces of job action they could take, withdraw services from uh, overtime, from special, you know, from coaching, from doing supervision at lunch hours, those types of things. Those are all part of potentially what we could hear about, but chances are, given the fact they went right to a strike, it was a one-day strike, we saw that happen twice, um, expecting it will be more strike action in terms of time off school. So again, that's 1 o'clock this afternoon, and our newsroom is continuing to follow this. Our newsroom is busy. we got lots on the go because Lisa Schick continues to report from Melfort. The inquiry into the James Smith Cree Nation and Weldon murders continues. It's a uh, a three-week-long inquest, actually, and uh, this is the start of week three today. Senior reporter Lisa Schick is there and joins us again this morning. Thanks again, Lisa, for taking our call. Yeah, no problem. So towards the end of last week, we were hearing from people who work in the correction system. Dr. Jeffrey Waldman, a registered psychiatrist who saw Miles Sanderson in prison. What did uh, Dr. Waldman talk about? You know, he talked a little bit about some of the medications um, that Miles Sanderson was on, although he had only seen Miles once for that purpose. More of what we got from Dr. Waldman were some insights about how the system works, how the mental health system, how kind of the health system works behind bars. And he talked about some problems that there were. He talked about sometimes there's some confusion when it comes to uh, charting. He talked about really there not being enough resources, not being enough people, not being enough time for the, the inmates, the offenders to get the kind of help that would really actually help them, that would really benefit them. He said that at at the moment, it was kind of just crisis management. So do you get the impression, Lisa, you know, I, I think about, of course, the whole intent behind this inquest is to have the jury make some recommendations that will ultimately prevent or at least lessen the chance of something like this happening again. When you hear someone like Dr. Waldman talk about some of these kind of less than perfect systems that are in place, whether it's corrections, uh, mental health. Do you think that really is lending itself to what we're going to hear in terms of recommendations? I think so. I mean, it may be difficult to know what the recommendations are going to be. I mean, you have, um, for example, the James Smith uh, lawyers. They obviously have a direction that they're going with some of the questions that they're asking in what they would want to see for recommendations. Um, and then you have a few witnesses like Dr. Waldman who will say, you know, this is a problem. This is something that could be fixed, although they're not directly kind of connecting it to Miles Anderson's case. But a lot of the witnesses when they're asked, like, do you have any recommendations that you would suggest? Is there anything that you think could have been done better? A large number of them 
are saying no. A large number of them are saying, you know, I don't have any recommendations that might have helped with this. Um, I can't think of anything to tell you. So it, it could be, you know, what some of the lawyers are pointing toward. But I think there could be some things that, that maybe haven't been suggested. Like, it depends on what the jurors looking at all this evidence come up with. So then we also heard from psychologist David McGale. Um, he did the risk assessment on Miles Sanderson in federal prison. What did he have to talk about? You know, McGale talked about um, the assessment, at, you say the report, and he went through a lot of documents uh, to deal with that report, put that report together. He also had, I think it was a, a three-hour interview with Miles to get some of the information and, you know, he talked about uh, some of the assessments that he did and the actual kind of risk height that he put him at. He said some of the assessment, assessments put him at kind of a medium to high risk to reoffend. His overall was a medium risk to reoffend. But it was interesting because um, previously in this inquest, we heard from a uh, behavioral psychologist who had done a report on Miles kind of postmortem. And he said that, you know, he showed traits of psychopathy. He um, likely had antisocial personality disorder, things like that. But uh, this Miguel, he kind of disagreed with that. He said that he doesn't think he had much, if any, psychopathy. And he said, you know, I don't think he had antisocial personality disorder. He might have shown a few traits of it, uh, but not a full-blown disorder. So that, that kind of... Uh, difference there uh, was interesting you know i found it i follow your uh, your tweets by the way lisa you do a great job keeping us up to date as testimony is going and you, you talked about in one of your tweets that dr mcgale had said he actually couldn't distinguish at times whether miles was saying things from a self-awareness standpoint or from the programming that he was receiving did it did it matter? Was he trying to show that he was saying it, then that was good, or or does it matter if Miles really was was understanding that in terms of, I guess, how they ultimately assess the risk? Well, you know, that, that's kind of the question, right? And I think that's the question that a lot of people are having when it comes to this situation, because what we're hearing is when he was behind bars, he seemed to understand and that he needed to change. He seemed to want to change. Um, Miguel was talking about, you know, he was taking responsibility for what he did, and he understood that he had hurt people. But a lot of people are wondering, you know, was this just him kind of parroting back what it is that he knew that they wanted him to say because he had been in this programming and he knew what they wanted from him? Or was this real? Was he really changing? And it was just that something happened once he got out that... that kind of change things back for him. Senior reporter Lisa Schick with me this morning. So the autopsies, that was a big part of the testimony we heard right near the end of the week. Uh, tough for people to hear, tough for you to tweet about. I know in your your tweets and in your stories, you cautioned that some of the details were graphic. In fact, you you were edited yourself just in terms of, of trying not to uh, be too shocking, but you, you want to try and cover it in a way that it does justice. We were we we heard testimony describing the injuries and how long it would have taken for people to die. Why was that important, Lisa? I think it was important because there were a lot of people who tried to help in this situation. There were family members who tried to help their loved ones. There were um, people in the community who who went out and they were trying to help. They were trying to do first aid. 
Um, it's also important in the realm of recommendations because if you are making recommendations and you hear that, you know, maybe some people were critical of the response, you might want to make a recommendation that the response needs to be quicker. But when the pathologists say, you know, with these people's injuries, they would have died uh, one person, it was possibly within seconds. Most of them, it was within 10 minutes, they would have passed away. So when the First Nation is 25 minutes away from uh, the nearest paramedic, the nearest hospital, that's a 50-minute round trip, and it just wouldn't have worked. Even if the paramedics would have been able to go immediately to those houses, bring them back, it still wouldn't have saved them, unfortunately. Looking at the autopsy reports and the testimony that was received, a number of people died from multiple stab wounds. There were some that died from single stab wounds. Was that part of the discussion, and did that give us some insight into, you know, the intent that Miles had with everybody that he encountered? You know, there were some questions about that, about whether it was a a, a practiced thing, but it, it seemed like it was just more that's where he was going with it. There there was some talk about, you know, uh, earlier in the inquest, there was an RCMP officer who said that he was kind of sh- uh, struck by how many stab wounds were to the neck and to the upper chest. And what we heard from the pathologist was it was usually that the blow to the neck, the cut to the neck that was kind of the the worst injury that they had, the injury that actually caused the death. And for almost everybody, it was it was something to the neck or to the upper chest, which affected you know, their lungs or, or even their heart. Hmm. This, you know, I've said this to you before, Lisa, and I know you've talked lots about the people that are sitting in the room listening to this testimony. Many of them are family members of people that died that day or were injured. Um, some of them had firsthand encounters with Miles Sanderson that day. Uh, it's tough for community. It's tough for all of you in there. How are the jury members reacting to the testimony now as we start week three? Um, unfortunately, there's a very large uh, projector screen that is between the media area and the jury. <laughs> so you don't so, get a chance to, to see their reactions? No, I can't see them. Um, I do know that, that they are asking questions. They are an engaged jury. It's not like they're just sitting there kind of uh, taking it all in, hoping for everything to be over. I know that the reaction in the room um can be quite strong, especially with, uh, as you said just recently, the the autopsy reports. There were a lot of tears. There were some people who had to leave the room because it was they, they just couldn't handle, you know, hearing what their loved one went through. Lisa, before we let you go, what's on the agenda for today, and are we still on target to wrap up midweek this week? Today we are going to be hearing from a couple of the elders who worked with Miles Sanderson in prison. Uh, we're also expecting to hear from a representative from the, the parole board, which could be interesting because there are a lot of questions that are kind of swirling around um, why it was that Miles Sanderson was given his statutory release and why he was released again after breaching that. Um, after that, there's actually only one other uh, witness who's on the list. They're expected to go tomorrow. Um, they are a a representative from the RCMP, and I'm told that they are going to give us a little bit more information about what happened to Miles between the last person that he killed, Wesley Pedersen, 
and when he was arrested. That's something that hasn't really been talked about much at all because of the second inquest that's happening next month. After that, uh, the coroner is going to charge the jury, and I would expect us to be um, done with recommendations Wednesday on the outside, maybe Thursday. Senior reporter Lisa Schick, thanks so much for the update again today. Thank you. We will check in again with uh, Lisa tomorrow morning. And uh, as you just heard, very likely we'll see the end of this inquest by midweek of this week. Of course, an inquest like this draws a lot of people sitting there, not just family members, community members, but lots of people representing special interest groups as well. And then inevitably they will go out and speak to the media afterwards. Kim Bowden is one of those guys, the National Vice Chief of the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples. Um, he's done a lot of work, and we've we've met and talked about Kim before. He's a sitting member on the National Indigenous Advisory Committee to Corrections and the individual responsible for the justice portfolio for the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples. I do, though, take exception to one thing that he said in terms of recommendations. It's not over yet. We'll talk a little bit about that. I want to talk about recommendations and how that rolls out. In fact, I've got a letter that I wrote to Chief Coroner Clive Wayhill with regard to an inquest we were involved in. And just give you some context of the level of responsiveness that many agencies have to recommendations when they come out from an inquest like this. We'll talk about that next right here on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. Good morning, I'm Evan Bray. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Just had a good conversation with senior reporter Lisa Schick, who is covering the inquest into the James Smith Cree Nation and Weldon murders in Melfort. It should be wrapped up by midweek this week. I mentioned that many people are there taking part in the uh, the last couple of weeks, watching as things unfold. Kim Bowden is there, the National Vice Chief of the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples, uh, not only participating, listening to what's being said, but has offered some comments in the media as well. In fact, he's pushing for a national inquiry into the mass killings. He wants to see that take place because I think he's he's seeing that there's maybe room for some systemic changes in things like corrections, parole, some of those things that are more on a national level and often an inquest. Not to say that it can't direct some of the recommendations to a national entity. Oftentimes, though, they might go to the, you know, the local police, uh, could be social services, whatever the case may be. You know, I did, I read a recent article where he was interviewed and he says whatever recommendations do come out of the inquest that he doesn't hold much hope that you would see them implemented. I, I was with him all the way through the article until, until that point because And I've talked about this before. As a former chief of police, there was a lot of responsibility that came to me if we were named, as a result of an inquest, we were named in the recommendations. And so if I look at one of the most recent ones, and I've talked about this, you can go on the Saskatchewan Saskatchewan Coroner's website and look up any inquest that's been held. It's all done alphabetically by the name of the person in the inquest. So if I talk about Jeffrey Morris, which was an inquest that the Regina Police Service was involved in, um, you can go look under Jeffrey Morris and you will find in there not only the recommendations that came out, but a letter from me to Chief Coroner Clive Wayhill responding basically to those recommendations. And so just to give you an example, on the letter, I refer to the fact that one of the recommendations was to make it mandatory that a psychologist arrive with our crisis negotiation team if if they're called out to a call. Check. 
we did that. We have a psychologist that works. We actually have a couple that work with our team uh, in Regina, and they will go out. Number two, the need for recording devices for all crisis negotiators. So something that they can use to record the conversation as it's happening between someone maybe in a room. So if it's not on the phone, it might be face-to-face. You still need to be able to capture that. Check. We were able to do that at the Regina Police Service. Have an emergency list of elders available, Indigenous elders, in case the person is Indigenous, and that might help de-escalate the situation. That's that to me is a is a really good foundational recommendation we were able to talk with our elders advisory committee we put together a list of elders that would i mean that's a big thing that would be willing to take a call in the middle of the night and potentially even come out and talk to someone in distress we did that at the Regina Police Service. And then a couple of recommendations around training, mental health, crisis intervention, de-escalation. The Regina Police Service implemented all of those. Even finding a way to train the public on mental health options that are available for someone in mental crisis. We worked with our PAC partners to do that. They recommended earpieces for police officers. So because part of it was the radio going off was a bit of a distraction in that case. So if they had an earpiece in their ear, they could hear the radio, but other people in the room couldn't. That is something that has been rolled out. Body cameras was the only thing, and we didn't say no to it. We said that is going to have to be a decision that we make with the Board of Police Commissioners. It's a fairly big uh, monetary value that's attached to that, millions of dollars. So my point to Kim Bowden is I don't think it's fair to say that there's very little chance any of these recommendations will actually be acted upon. I just listed right there seven And six of them we were able to do at the Regina Police Service. And that's the case. If you go through any of these, social services makes changes. It could be a variety. It could be a community-based organization that has to respond to a recommendation. And I'm guaranteeing that we will see not only the recommendations that come out from James Smith Cree Nation, but the corresponding response from the agencies who they're directed to as well. You're listening to 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.